Good morning, everyone. Good to see you here. I want to welcome you to Union Baptist Church as we begin this morning. So our scripture reading today is going to be from the book of Philippians. We're going to start in chapter 4 at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 9 for our call to worship. While you're finding that, I just want to remind you that uh, we do have Grace Marriage starting up. It says September the 6th. So if you've got, if you're a part of Grace Marriage, you can, you need to be here on September 6th for that. And you can get with Lindsay or Chelsea because in November there's a Women of Hope conference that's upcoming. Uh, Jen Wilkin will be in, in uh, Bowling Green. So if you would like to go with the ladies to that, see either Chelsea or Lindsay to, to make that happen. I told you to go to Philippians, not change the page on myself. So Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. God's Word says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I, also, I ask also you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Well, let me just come back and point out a couple of things real quick before we pray. I picked this passage mainly because of its uh, what it said about praying, that, that we should not be anxious in anything, but, uh, but with prayer and supplication, uh, with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God. And I really wanted to stress that just for the sake of an encouragement to pray, but I, I can't help but want to focus a little bit here also on how the apostle tells us where to put our thoughts. I mean, do you, you ever think about that? You're in control of what you decide to think about. You're not in control of what pops into your brain, but you're in control of what you continue to dwell on and so Paul says, don't just let your mind think about what your mind wants to think about. Fill it with these things, things that are pure, things that are lovely, things that are commendable, things that are excellent, things that are praiseworthy. And then he tells them to practice the things that they've seen in him. And that's important. That's an important part of our spiritual discipline. So keep that in mind as we keep in mind also the call to pray at all times for all things and trust in the Lord as we, as we go to him even right now. Fathers, we gather this morning, we want to thank you for your word. We're thankful, God, that it knows us. It knows our hearts. It knows our weaknesses, God. And it very gently at times speaks to those weaknesses and exposes them, even as Paul has done right here in this letter to the Philippians. God, through your word, we recognize what is true about ourselves, that our tendency is to be anxious and prayerless. We, we fret over problems. We fret over uh, obstacles. We fret over health and, and, and suffering and all the things that, that come against us, our trials and tribulations. But what we, and, and so what we often do in the midst of those is we, we think about, well, if this happens, then I'll do that. And, and if this happens, then, then this will be the plan that I put into place. And, and if they say this, then I'm going to do that. And we, we strategize, and, but we're constantly caught in a cycle of our own thoughts. Your word says to break that cycle to quit trying to plan for the future in our own strength, to quit trying to defend ourselves, but rather to bring our requests to you, our fearful requests, to bring them to you, to, off, to, to offload our anxieties on you because of your care for us, to make our, our requests known to you, and then you tell us what to fill our minds with. Rather than continuing to fret, think about the truth of your word. Think about things that are honorable and commendable and praiseworthy and virtuous. Fill our minds with those things, not with the fears and anxieties of the future or the what-ifs or the hows or the whys. And so, God, we ask because we're, we're in desperate need of, of putting that to practice. Not one of us here has graduated from that class. 
And so we confess to you our weakness this morning that, that often we're afflicted and, and we're tried and we, we act as if we're dealing with it in our own power and in our own wisdom. But God, we're not. We can pray and you answer and you've told us what to put our minds on and we ask that you would give us the encouragement to do so. Not to just hear what you're saying, but to actually practice what you're saying so that we might receive the blessing and be faithful in our times of trial and tribulation so that we bring honor and glory to your name and not just protection to our own lives, but God, rather that we would entrust you to protect us and to meet our needs. God, increase our prayerfulness as your people. We do pray, but we don't pray often enough and we don't pray as we ought to. And so we ask that you would, through your word, as you've done this morning, just continue to teach us the correct way to pray so that our prayers are unhindered uninhibited so that they're more frequent and more full of faith and more encouraged and more excited and more hopeful. And God, we entrust ourselves to you this morning and help us to put our mind on those things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and that you would lift us up as we worship you today. God, that we would be encouraged to make much of Christ for he is great and he is greatly to be praised. And we want God to reflect that in our singing and in our giving this morning. So help us to do that for your glory and for the good of our neighbors and for the good of the world around us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I just remind you about Barry Corder, one of our missionaries that is going to, to Georgia, the country of Georgia. He's actually there now. I think he's, he's in the process of traveling back uh, to the United States. But he and one of his daughters went over uh, to just kind of make an initial trip and kind of get plans settled. Uh, so let's be praying this month for uh, Barry Corder and, and his family pray. They're still seeking to raise support. They're not all the way there. Uh, they have two different funds, their monthly fund and then kind of their launch fund, just enough money to get them there. Uh, so pray that the Lord would provide for them, pray for safety as they're traveling. So let's pray this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and Lord, help us, help us truly have eyes of faith to, to see that we, we really do worship this morning a great God. You are, you are great and you're worthy of all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. And I pray uh, that you would do a work in our hearts this morning, even as we approach this time of, of praise, this time of giving, this time of worshiping you through submitting to your word. We, we pray that we would be in awe and have reverence for your great name. Lord, do that work in our hearts because we come to you this morning and, and many of us, are, our hearts are cold and, and they're indifferent, they're dead toward things that are so great, great realities, Lord. We, we pray that we would just have a, a taste of that this morning and a greater sense of, of your awesomeness. We do pray for Barry Corder and his family. God, we pray for safety as they're traveling Lord, we pray that you would supply every one of their needs, that they would be able to get to the field on time. And as they get there, Lord, we, we pray that you would do a great work through their ministry. We pray that many people would hear the gospel and be saved, that many pastors would be raised up and trained uh, in preaching and teaching your word. God bless them in, in a unique way today. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 4, our children can head out there this time. Ruth chapter 4, we've been walking chapter by chapter through a story like this. It's kind of hard because in one sense this is a short book and it's a story really that's meant to be told all, all at one time. Um, and we've been taking one chapter at a week uh, each week and so sometimes it's, it's easy I guess to get lost in the weeds and kind of lose the, the overall picture one of the things that, as Jared and I have talked about this, one of, so, some of the key themes that we see in this story is what we've been trying to hit on each week. Uh, and we see really three major themes in, in the book of Ruth. We've, we've seen the providence of God. We see that especially, we see it all through this, but, but especially in chapter one, uh, where God providentially uh, brought some difficult trials into the life of, of Naomi and then by extension Ruth and, and the rest of the family there. And we saw that that Naomi recognized that this was indeed a, an act of God. This was this was the hand of the Lord going against her. She said, and I think we said that we she was right to see that uh, that this was a difficult providence that God had allowed in in her life. 
And then we set a second theme that we that we see, and we see this really picking up in chapter two is the the theme of love. Uh, we we looked at that in chapter two. We see uh, at the end of chapter one, really, we see the the love of Ruth for Naomi as as uh, uh, Naomi's going back from the land of Moab. And Ruth says, I'm going with you. She leaves her family. She leaves everything behind and comes back to this foreign, what to her is a foreign land uh, to be with Naomi. Uh, and, and she's got a love for the Lord there. She says, your God will be my God. And she also has a love for Naomi. Then we saw that there's a, a third theme, and that is the, the theme of redemption. And Jared began to really pick up on that in last week in chapter three. And I don't mean to say that these that these themes are just by chapter. I just think each of these chapters kind of, this is the main theme. These three themes are really tangled throughout the whole book. But in, in chapter three, we see, uh, that, that, uh, Ruth, uh, the, the love that Boaz displayed to Ruth is an attractive thing to her and it draws her to, uh, to Boaz and, and she comes to him and seeking help, seeking uh, for him to redeem her. That is deliverance from her destitute situation. And there, again, we see Boaz was willing to do that. Uh, Ruth said, spread your wings over me. T- take me in, redeem me, provide for me. And Boaz says, I- I'll do that. But you remember sort of toward the end of that story, there's a bit of a snag. It- it's kind of like uh, any good story. It-, it seems like it's going on this arc, you know, and there's this you feel like you're getting to the culmination and then at the end or toward the end, there's this little twist to it. Uh, and that's what we have at the end of, of chapter three, because Boaz says, I will redeem you. Uh, but, but, and I, and I want to do that, but there's a redeemer who's closer. And so I'll, I've got to go talk to him. If we're going to do this, uh, according to the, the tradition, and we're going to be above board on this, then we need to follow this. And so that's what we find in chapter four, what we're going to look at. Uh, is that Boaz goes to this other person, we don't even know his name, uh, to, to say, hey, you have the right of redemption. There was some land involved in this, but if you, if you take that land, if you redeem that land, uh, then, then also you, need, you have the responsibility to, to marry uh, Ruth and to raise up seed to her deceased husband uh, and provide for Naomi as well. And... Uh, and Boaz is doing that in hopes of this guy will say no, and then he will take that right of redemption. But what we see here in, in sort of the main point of chapter four before we read it is this, because of his strong love for Ruth, because of Boaz's strong love for Ruth, he resolutely and strategically pursues marriage with Ruth, though it's a complicated uh, issue, and it really is a losing proposition for him. There's, there's not much for him to gain uh, financially or, or in terms of status. And then what I think I want us to see this morning is that in Boaz's self, selfless and steadfast pursuit of his love, Ruth, he provides to us both a pattern, a pattern for us to follow in the way that we ought to love others. And then he points us to Christ and the love that Christ has for his bride, the, the church. So let's read chapter four now. In verse four, number one, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken. This is the closer relative came, came by. And so Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit, uh, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders, my people, of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. 
Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all, all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and to Malon. Also, the, also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elder said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And so we see here that Boaz is resolute in, in his love of, of Naomi, or Ruth rather. Uh, he, he pursues Ruth. It, it would have been easy at this moment. Uh, here, here's an opportunity uh, for Boaz to sort of get out of this. There, there's another redeemer. There's complicating factors. Uh, it would have been easy for Boaz just simply to say, hey, there's, there's somebody else. Let him take care of you. This is a lot. This, this is going to entangle me in a lot of situations, and I don't really want to bother with this. There, there's a lot of legalities and technicalities to it. Uh, I, I'd rather not get all twisted and tangled up into this. But, but there's something that is driving Boaz to push through all of this. There's, there's an obstacle here, but he doesn't allow that obstacle to stop him from pursuing Ruth. And the thing that is driving him is a love that he has for Ruth. This, this is a pure love. There's nothing in, in our world, in our day and time, it's hard for us, even as we read this story, because we, we so tend to think there's some kind of ulterior motive. Why is Boaz doing this? What is it that he's gaining from this? What is it that he stands to, to get by, by doing all of this? But we see it's none of that. What is driving Boaz to pursue Ruth to push through these obstacles uh, and, and to be able to make Ruth his wife is that he loves her. It's, it's a pure love. There's nothing to be gained by Boaz in, in doing this. There's, there's nothing fa financially or, or socially that he would get by marrying Ruth. In fact, uh, uh, quite to the contrary, there's, there's some things that he would stand to lose. There's, there's a bit of a social stigma in uh, marrying Ruth. She's a Moabite woman. There, there's, this is a foreign woman. God had prohibited the, the people from, from marrying them. Uh, there's a sense in which Boaz would kind of take a, a hit uh, in terms of his reputation by marrying this, this foreigner. So certainly not that. We, we know, reading from the rest of the story, there, there's nothing really to be gained in terms of financially. Uh, Ruth is, is destitute. There's no dowry, as, as perhaps sometimes would have been the case in, in ancient marriages. Uh, this isn't going to take him up. He's not marrying for status or, or for money. In fact, both of these ways, Ruth is not an asset, but really a deficit. She, she brings baggage. He not only has to support Ruth in this deal, but also Naomi, uh, the widow of, of Elimelech. He's also bound, uh, at least in terms of what would be expected of him, to, to raise up a, a son to Malon, to the, to the dead husband in, in his name. And that son would become the one to inherit all that belonged uh, to Naomi and to her, her family. Plus, there's there's a an additional risk, there's a potential that in marrying Ruth and having children with her, he could jeopardize what he already, what he already has. There, there's a light, all likelihood that, that Boaz perhaps had other children and, and other wives, and, and there's a sense in which what he had as a person who was a person of status, who owned property, who had servants, uh, he's really risking all of that 
uh, in pursuit of this love. There's the turmoil that, that could come from that. You remember uh, the turmoil that was in Abraham's family with Abraham and uh, with Ishmael and, and with Isaac and, and the, the, the two different wives and the, the sons. There's the turmoil that was going on in Jacob's house. Jacob's house was full of turmoil uh, because of the, the fighting that existed there. Taking on the support of these two women and raising up a child to this to this man who had died was was nothing but pure risk without really any foreseeable reward. And that's precisely why this other man declines it, right? Uh, Boaz shows up at the gate and he says, hey, you want to buy some real estate? And the guy's like, yeah, absolutely. You, you have the first right, you kind of the first right of refusal to this real estate. You can purchase this land uh, if you want. And the guy's like, oh yeah, absolutely. I've got other land and other property. I'd like to expand a little bit. Uh, and then Boaz sort of drops the bomb on him and says, well, it, when you do that, there's there's a, a an expectation that you will also take in Naomi and Ruth and that you'll raise up a, a child to, to Ruth and uh, in the name of her, her deceased husband. It's Ruth the Moabite. You notice he throws that in there. Hey, hey when you do this, the day that you do it, uh, you, Ruth the Moabite uh, becomes your, your wife. He mentions the obligation to take up an, and raise up a child. And, and all of this is what leads that man to just say, hey, I don't, I don't think so. You know, that sounded like a good deal p- p- perhaps at first. I, I could gain a little more land in this, but now there's, there's too many other factors here. There's too many other risks uh, that, that I really don't want to get involved in. And that's what the man says. You see this in verse uh, verse number six, right? Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. You see, this was a losing proposition. There was nothing to gain from it. There was nothing for this other Redeemer. And listen, there was nothing for Boaz to gain from this. Boaz was all the same reasons that that man would have hesitated from, from taking on this responsibility, the, the same would be true of Boaz. The only thing that was propelling Boaz to pursue this and to do it so resolutely and, and to want to make Ruth his wife was his love for Ruth. You see, without love, there was nothing to motivate this well, uh, well-reasoning businessman to take on this kind of liability. He's like, well, what about romance and and physical attraction. We might be tempted, I think, to read in this story uh, with with our, we've probably all watched one too many or maybe many too many uh, romantic comedies and and romance movies. And and in our mind, that's what we're thinking here all, all along. We've, we've got this romantic view of, of love. We've watched too much uh, Netflix and we're saying, hey, Boaz is just driven here by, by passion and by physical attraction. Uh, Ruth is so beautiful. And that's what, that's what would lead him to do that. This love that Boaz had, no doubt, it, it was a love that was a romantic love, no doubt about that. There was definitely some physical attraction. But what I would say is that it was something much more than that. Uh, it wasn't just physical attraction and, and romance. Let's be blunt, for, for a man who simply couldn't control his urges and passions, there were other less costly options uh, that were at his disposal. Uh, this was a great risk for him. This was a great cost for Boaz. Uh, this was something that was more than just physical attraction and romance that's leading him to be so resolute in pursuing uh, marriage with, with Ruth. This was a, a deeper love. You know, the best example that I can liken this to is, is, is marriage, the, the love of, of a married couple, uh, who's been married for a long time. And, uh, and, and let me caveat that. Let me say that with that, a married couple who's been married for a long time who, who have continued to love each other and have a good marriage and treat each other well, uh, at the end of that 30 or 40 years, there's something else there, isn't there? You know, when you're initially married, married, the volume is sort of turned up on that physical attraction and that romance, right? But but that begins to fade, doesn't it? Uh, I, I don't know. You know, in, in our marriage, it hasn't faded at all, right? But but for some of you, I've, I've heard that, that that may begin to fade over time. But if you continue to work on your marriage and you continue to love your spouse well, 
something else comes up in its place. That, that love becomes more committed, a, a loyal kind of love, a, a selflessness. It's the kind of love that, uh, that, that isn't completely devoid of physical attraction and romance. That, that ought to still be there. But there's something deeper than that, right? There's a loyalty, there's a commitment, there's, there's a, a concern for the other person, a selflessness, a commitment to act for the, the good of the other person, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in, and in health. It's the kind of love that would lead a husband to sit by the bedside of his wife that he's been married to for 30 years as she goes through chemo. Right? There's not a lot of physical attraction and romance in that moment, is there? But there is certainly a lot of commitment. There's a lot of loyalty. There's a lot of selflessness displayed in that. That's, that's the kind of love I think we need to be thinking about when we read the book of Ruth. I'm, I'm not saying get rid of physical attraction and get rid of romance in this story. That, that's certainly a part of it. I just say, hey, dial that down a little bit and dial up a little bit in your mind because you've watched too many romantic comedies Dial up that kind of committed, selfless, persistent kind of love. The kind of love that somebody might have who's been married a long time. This is a selfless, loyal love. And and that's really the theme. We we said this is one of the themes, three themes in the book of Ruth is this loyal love. It's the kind of love that, that Ruth has already displayed to Naomi, right? Naomi says, I'm going back home. My husband has died. Your husband, my son has died. Both of my sons, I've got nothing left. I'm just going to go back and, and I'm going to beg for food and maybe maybe something good will, will happen there. And, and Ruth clings to Naomi. Naomi says, go back. It's better for you to stay here, right? It's better for you. You've, your odds are better at, 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 at something good happening to you in your own country, in your own family's house. They'll care for you. Don't come with me. And, and Naomi, or Ruth, clings to Naomi. You see, that's that kind of loyal, selfless love. Now I'm coming with you because I love you. I care about you. I, I, I want to help you. And that's the same kind of love that we need to think about when we think about Boaz's commitment to, to Ruth. It's not just all about physical attraction and romance. It's, it's a commitment. No, Ruth, I'm going to take care of you. I want to provide for you. I, I love you. I'm committed to you. And, and I want to do this. There's a lot of obstacles, but I'm going to work through those obstacles. I, I, I'm going to try to do my best to talk this guy out of, out of wanting to take this ride of redemption so I can marry you, so I can provide for you, so I can take care of you. In this scene, we see a man who is committed to eagerly fighting through all the obstacles and willingly entering into a losing proposition because of his love for Ruth, this this love that we see here, secondly, is just a reflection of, of God's goodness. What we see Boaz displaying, displaying is the kind of love that God has for his people. In fact, we remember we, we kind of pointed that in, in chapter two, verse 20. It says, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, that is that same word has said, steadfast love, whose steadfast love Committed, loyal love has not forsaken the living or the dead. And we said there's, there's a bit of ambiguity in that verse, chapter 2, verse 20. Is that talking about the Lord's love for, for Naomi and for Ruth? Or is that talking about Boaz's love for them? And, and I think that, I think it's maybe intentionally a little bit ambiguous because really it's both. It's God's love, but it's God's love that is expressed through Boaz. Boaz is being an instrument of God's love in the life of Ruth and in the life of Naomi. And so it is just a, a reflection of God's love. You see, what we see in Boaz is that Boaz is a man who's living by the spirit of God's law in a way that leads him to do the right thing, a good thing, something that is pleasing to the Lord. Now, we read last week Deuteronomy 25. We won't turn there and read right now. But in that, we get this law that much of this story is based on, the, the Leveret marriage laws, which was simply this, that if you were part of this family and you were married, uh, your husband dies, you don't have any children yet, the brother of, of that husband who passed away uh, would take you and make you his wife and raise up children to his his deceased brother so that one, you would be cared for 
and that the name of his brother would continue on. That son would take uh, the name of, of the brother. And so it was a way to, to remember the, the brother. It was also a way to love and to care for this woman who without some kind of support uh, would not be, be cared for. Now, what we need to understand is, is that that spoke directly to, that loss spoke directly to a brother. Uh, and, and so when we see Boaz taking on this responsibility, what we need to understand is, is that I don't think Boaz was actually required by God's law to do this. Boaz was not a brother to the deceased man. He, he was not a brother. He was, he was a near relative. He was a close relative. Uh, but, but I don't think there was a, a, a legal obligation for him to actually do this. And, and in fact, what we see here operating in this story is kind of a loosely enforced cultural expectation that was based on tradition, uh, the tradition of, of uh, the teachers of, of the law of that day. And it doesn't even seem to be taken that seriously uh, in this day and time. The, the man who refuses this, right, the other redeemer, he doesn't seem to even suffer any consequences from this. There's uh, maybe a little bit of social stigma or people looking down on him perhaps, uh, but but it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. But but what drives uh, Boaz to do this is that he's living by the spirit of God's law. See, he's not just worried about the technicality. Am I the next one? Do, do I have an actual obligation to fulfill this and, and to do this? No, he's recognizing God has given us this law to teach us that we need to care for our family. And, and I have a responsibility here, I think, to care for Ruth and to care for Naomi and to take this on, even if I'm not technically, legally uh, supposed to do this or have to do this, I want to do this. He was a man who wanted to obey God's law. Well, what is the spirit? You know, as we've been talking about this, I can't help but think that probably some of you are thinking, this is really weird. This, these leveret marriage laws. Uh, what, what is this all about? What I would say is this, leveret marriage laws was, was a culturally appropriate, to their culture, a culturally appropriate sort of social safety net. This was a way of, of caring for those uh, who might be marginalized or easily forgotten or abused in, in society. It was one of their ways, really, of caring for the, the poor. In order for you to understand that, what, really what you've got to understand is this, uh, you got to understand that the structure of society was really built around families in that day and time. Uh, that was, uh, in our modern Western sort of individualism, family is, is much less important, right? Not that family is, doesn't have any importance, but, but in that day and time, everything was built around the family that you belong to. Not just your immediate family, not just your mom and dad and brothers and sisters, but but aunts and uncles and cousins, they, they, they called them clans in the Bible. This was your clan. This was who you were you belonged to. And, and you had an obligation to help those who were part of your family, not just your immediate family, but also your extended family. These families were very close relationally, but it was more than just a relational thing. It wasn't just like, hey, we really like having family reunions and we always get together and we want to live close together. No, there's, there was a mutual watch care that took place within these family units, these extended family units. And, and that was a good thing. There, there was a, an understanding that this person belongs to me. Like, like I've, I've got a connection and, and I've got a responsibility to help care for them. And so when, when they're down and out, uh, when they're struggling, uh, when, when they hit hard times, I'm obligated to help them. And all of our family is obligated to help them. We don't see that near as much in, in our society, in our day and time. I think it's still there some. Uh, but, but that kind of mindset, that family unit kind of mindset is something that we really see in societies all over the world until just very recently. All you've got to do is watch movies like The Godfather, right? And you understand uh, that that was the kind of the mindset here. You're part of the family, right? And if you're part of the family, don't mess with our family. And if somebody's Something's happening to one of our family members. We got to help them. We got to take care of them. Well, well, that wasn't just true in Italian mobster culture, right? That was that was true in all kinds of cultures all over the world. It's only here recently that we've become so individualized and sort of self-sufficient. 
But that's the mindset that's going on in the book of Ruth. This is my family member. This is somebody that I need to care for. And so a woman who becomes a widow, and she doesn't have any children, there's no social security, there's no Medicare, there's no free health insurance, uh, there, there's no really safety nets in society. The safety net was your family. They cared for you. And if they didn't uphold their obligation to care for this family member, she would be destitute and poor and, and, and made to beg. And so we hear these leveret marriage laws and we think that seems really strange. Again, we think of it in an over-sexualized way uh, and that's all, we can't get around that. But, but this wasn't about the sex. This, this was about you need a child. You need children who are going to be able to care for you in your old age. You, you need sons who are going to be able, it's an agricultural society. You need sons who are going to be able to work the field and provide for you. You need family. That's what, that's what you need. And that's what these laws were based upon. Even in the New Testament culture, that mindset is still prevailing. We see in 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his own relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So that expectation doesn't go away. It's still there in the New Testament. When we see Jesus dying on the cross, what does he say to the apostle John? John, this is your mother. Mary, this, this is your son. What is Jesus doing there? He's not so much, he's not venerating Mary or, or making a, a great deal to do about Mary. What he's doing there is saying, John, take care of her. She's your mother. I was supposed to be the one who was going to care for her. I'm dying. I'm not going to be able to do that. John, you take on this responsibility. Mary, this, this is your son. He's going to care for you. When we think about the law, then what we need to do is we think about the Old Testament law and this, this story in particular. What we need to do is be able to discern between specific cultural application and to see the spirit behind the law. This was a specific culturally relevant way to care for your family, to, to love those who were in need. We don't have those laws anymore. We don't have the need to, to marry your deceased brother's wife, right? We, we don't need to do that, but there's a spirit behind that law, isn't there? We should care for those who are in need. We shouldn't be like this man who's like, Oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to get my inheritance all tangled up in this mess. All right. You said real estate. I was all about that. I could, I could kind of position myself a little bit better, but now there's all these entanglements here. I'm not getting all worked up in that. You go ahead. Go ahead, Boaz. That's all yours. Right. And that's what, that's the way we act sometimes. Right. We see people in need. We have family members. We have family members in our congregation, our spiritual family who are in need. And we just step back and say, uh, oh, that's messy, right? I don't, I don't want any, any part of that. You see, there's a, a spirit behind all of that, that law. And it's not just the leveret marriage laws. There's laws like in Deuteronomy 17.7 and following uh, where the Lord says this, the, the poor, for there will never cease to be the poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and the poor in your land. Or Exodus 22, where it talks about sojourners, people who, who come into the land, who move into the land. He says, don't oppress them, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So there's all kinds of laws in the Old Testament, not only these leveret marriage laws, uh, but, but Boaz is also a man who's been impacted by all of the law of God that realized, hey, here's a sojourner who's in need of help. Here's, a, here's an impoverished widow, two impoverished widows who need help. This isn't all about romantic love. This is about Boaz's love for the Lord, his willingness to obey the law of God and say, I'm going to help those who are in need. That's what we see going on. Bo Boaz's love was an expression of his obedience to the spirit of God's law. He wasn't looking for a technicality to get out of this. Hey, there's another redeemer. This is messy. It's going to cost me. It's going to cost my reputation. It's going to cost me in terms of finances. I don't want anything to do with this. No, no. He's not looking for a technicality. He's a man who's living by the spirit of God's law to say, I'm going to enter into this mess. I'm going to help them. It's going to be costly. It's going to cost me in terms of my reputation, but I love this person and I want to obey the law of God. And so I'm going to care for them. I'm going to meet their need. We need to be careful that, that we're not looking for technicalities to get out of our responsibility to care for those that God, have put, God has put in our life. There's always technicalities. That's exactly what the, the Pharisees were so good at. 
and why Jesus condemned them in the New Testament. They were always good about finding the technicalities. This is what God's law says, but here's this little technicality. I can get out of it. That's precisely what's going on when the scribe comes to Jesus and says, hey, what's the greatest commandments? I want to know because I'm all about keeping God's law, right? And Jesus says, hey, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And what does the man ask him? After that, he asked him, and who is my neighbor? Why is he asked that? Because he's looking for a technicality. He's saying, hey, what are the limits to this love? I don't want to love anybody unnecessarily. I don't want to get myself entangled in too many messes. It's hard to love people. It's hard to care for people. And so I'm just going to kind of protect myself. You give me a list of exactly who I'm required to love so that I don't, I don't waste any love and I don't get into too many messes. And then it's at that point that Jesus tells them the story of the Good Samaritan, right? The, the Pharisee and the other religious leader passed by the man who's lying, been beaten and robbed on the side of the road. He's, he's lying there left for dead and these religious leaders just go right by him and then a Samaritan comes and he cares for him. He binds up his wounds and he takes him to uh, a place where he can stay and recuperate and he pays what, what needs to be paid. You see, that's messy. But, but what Jesus was showing him here is, hey, don't look for technicalities. Obey the spirit of the law. Be, be a person wherever you see people in need who enter into that, who don't, who don't run away because it's messy and it's, and it's costly. Be a person who enters into that. That's what we see in Boaz. We see someone whose love is extending to people in, in need. We don't see someone who's looking for a, a way to get out of a responsibility. We see someone like the Good Samaritan who's looking for an opportunity to show God's love to whoever comes his, his way. Sure, Boaz, I think, was attracted to Ruth. But more importantly, Boaz loved God. And he was here displaying the holiness of God. God commanded the people in the Old Testament, be holy as I am holy. And as they obeyed God's law, that's exactly what they were doing. Boaz was becoming an expression of God's love in the life of Ruth and Naomi. The beauty of this story is the beauty of someone who is willing to take on a losing proposition because he loved God and because he loved his neighbor. You know, what I want us to see this morning in, in application to this really is that the responsibility for God's people, that's us, right? The responsibility we have as God's people to reflect God's goodness and, and to demonstrate this kind of love, it's not gone away. What we see and say that's good in the story of Ruth, we have we still have an obligation to carry that out. All right. We're not under the old covenant. We're not under the Old Testament law. We don't have the leveret marriage laws. OK, so that's probably a, a good thing for most of us who would think that would be really awkward and really weird. But but we are still under an obligation to carry out the spirit of the law, which is to love your neighbor as you love yourself and to care for those who are in need. So I just ask you this morning, first of all, are, are there people in your family who, who are in need? I read that that passage from first Timothy chapter five, verses three through eight. And, and you realize that's a New Testament passage. That's a New Testament expectation. Paul says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We live in a modern, Western, individualized society where we kind of cut ourselves off from our family. But listen, this morning, if you're a child of God, a follower of Jesus Christ, there is an expectation that you help care for your family members. Yes, you're immediate. He says, especially, especially those of his own household. That would be your close family. But this is really any relative. If you have relatives who are in need, you have a responsibility as a follower of Jesus Christ to help care for them. And we think, well, they can get on, uh, they can get on government subsidies and there are, there are ways that they can get helped and all of that, that is true, but that does not mitigate your responsibility to help family members who are in need. And then I would say this, we need to remember that the New Testament extends this kind of familial care that we're supposed to have for, for our family. It, it includes that, it extends it rather, to our spiritual family as well. You remember 
the words of, of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 25. He talk, talking about the judgment day, Matthew 25, 34, he says this, then the king, that is God, will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. I was, I was like Ruth and Naomi. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger like, like Ruth the Moabite. And you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it, to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, Jesus is extending there that kind of familial care that, that Boaz displays toward Ruth and to Naomi. He extends that to all who are followers of Jesus Christ. You see, we as a body, as a church, we have an obligation to one another, to care for one another. The, the, the pressing example right now is of Ken, who's, who's been so sick. Jesus would tell you if he were here, you need to see the see Ken as your father, right? He's been in the nursing home. He's not doing well. He's back at home, but he's falling all the time. He, he's in need of care. He's, he's in need of concern. And there, there are others. I won't, I won't point everyone out, right? But, but we've seen people who've been through crises. We've seen people who have been in difficult places. And what this story is telling, hey, be like Boaz, be, be like the Good Samaritan. We need to see that this is a pattern for us to follow. We have an obligation not only to our family members, but to our spiritual family as well to care for their needs. These are our brothers and sisters, our mothers and our fathers. We need to recognize that. We have an obligation to care and love for one another. And this is not just a peripheral issue in the faith. This isn't just like one of those things that we can say, well, yeah, we need to get better at that. No, this is this is something that's at the heart of Christianity. This is the heart of of who we ought to be. In fact, James says in James 127 that religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is true religion, James says. We're not to be those who who love in word only. We're not to be those who, who have a faith that doesn't lead them to action. We should be those who are involved like Boaz, who, who enter into the fray, who enter into the mess, who entangle ourselves in some messy situations sometimes because we're doing it for love, because we care for those that God has put in our life. And then this morning, not only is this a, a pattern, and we'll close with this, not only is this a pattern for us to follow, but this is also a picture that points us to Jesus Christ. I think we need to be careful when we go to the Old Testament that we don't just make allegories out of these Old Testament stories. We don't, we don't want to lose the significance of these stories and, and give too many details to all the particulars of, of the story. But with those, with those caveats said, I think what we should see in the pattern of, of behavior within stories of the Old Testament is that they reflect the pattern of gospel, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel itself. In other, in other words, when we look at Old Testament stories, I think we see little glimpses and glimmers of the, the truth of the gospel. And I think we definitely see that in the story of Ruth and, and Boaz. We see patterns in this story that remind us of the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. Here's one of those patterns, and Jared, I think, mentioned it last week, so I'll only mention it quickly here this morning. One of those patterns is namely this, that, that Boaz, at great expense and at great risk to himself, does what is necessary to secure the marriage of the one whom he loved. And this is exactly what Christ has done for us. This is exactly what Christ has done for us at, at his own risk at his own expense he laid down his life he took this obligation upon himself which he was not required to do but which he, which he did because of love for you and for me and he laid down his life so that he could make us his bride 
What a beautiful picture of the gospel. Like Boaz, Christ was willing to pay the price to redeem his love. He, he, Christ was not like this other redeemer that was like, oh, that's messy. No, no, no. I, I don't want to, I don't want to involve myself in all of that. No, no. Christ was willing to pay the price for you to have you as, as part of his people, as part of his bride. And it was a great cost. Jared, I think, quoted from Ephesians 5 last week, but it, it is important. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The church is his bride, and he was willing to lay down his life. It was a great expense. Like Boaz, Jesus willingly, eagerly pushed through the great obstacles in order to, in order to redeem us. He willingly faced the shame of of the cross in order to redeem his his bride. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And that's what that's what we see Boaz doing, right? There's the joy of of marrying this beloved woman. He he loves her, he cares for her. There's the joy that's set before him. And so he pushes through all of these obstacles. Like Boaz, Jesus was willing to condescend in order to redeem his bride. He, he didn't cling to his position, but instead came down to our level by taking on humanity. Boaz didn't care about his reputation. But Boaz, people might say something. You're marrying a Moabite woman? This, just, just don't get involved in this. But Boaz didn't care about his reputation. He was willing to lay aside that reputation in order to pursue his beloved. And that's what Christ has done for us Philippians chapter 2, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, something to, something to hold on to. Instead, he emptied himself. He laid that aside and took the form of a servant. And like Ruth, you and I are like Ruth, the, the bride. There, there's nothing that we had to offer in terms of why would God love us? Why would God pursue us as he's pursued us? There was nothing that we had to offer it was all risk on his part. It was all expense on his part. There's nothing to be gained and, and really everything to be lost by doing it. And yet he did it, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, because of the great love with which he loved us. The love of Boaz for Ruth is a mirror. It's a little glimpse into the love that Christ has for, for you and, and for me. We have to praise the Lord this morning. We see in, in these actions here of, of Boaz, not only a pattern for us to follow, but a picture of the gospel. Pray with me this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his love. We thank you that he was willing to lay aside all of these things to pursue us at great cost. He's willing to lay down his life to make us his bride. We praise you, Lord, for that. God, we pray that you would help us to be like Christ and to be like Boaz, that we would be people who are not safeguarding ourselves and protecting ourselves, insulating ourselves from those who are in need, but those who, like Boaz, willingly pursue these, uh, these who are in need. God, open our eyes. We, we know that the reality is that there are people all around us who are in need. I pray that you'd open our eyes to see that and give, it, give us a heart like Christ. Uh, to, to meet their needs, to love them in this selfless kind of way. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.